Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Not fear, but please stay here. Stay at home now, everyone. We must wash and clean things well. Cars, no long trips, just for fun. Welcome to the Hilo, the weekly pop culture and current affairs podcast, brought to you remotely by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. We are now in the Hilo's Panny D season. God, that's Dolly's word for the pandemic. Locky D in the panny D. Although I actually don't like to think of it as a lockdown. I like to think of it as a lock-in, like your favourite pub. This is not the return to the high-low that perhaps we anticipated. We are recording, obviously, during a pretty bleak time, which needs no explanation. I know a lot of people are feeling very anxious today with the news that Boris Johnson's been admitted to the ICU. So we will aim to bring you the light and the bright as much as we can in these incredibly strange times on the high-low. I think we should talk a bit about our setup. So we've got CJ sitting in his home in Essex. We got to meet on House Party Mrs CJ for the first time. And we also saw CJ's weights loitering in the back of shot which he rather defensively I think says wasn't his and they belong to his wife and I think the CJ doth protest too much they are Zadie sized she can lift that weight (laughs) we've got Pandora reporting live from our usual studio space in her home and we have me in Devon in a cottage overlooking the seat now before I have anthrax (laughs) through my letterbox Stop going to your second home, Dolly. (laughs) Oh my God. If this, if what comes out of the Hilo Panny D special is that I'm like one of those MPs that has three secret homes, (laughs) I will be very angry. No, so what happened is I came to Devon to my favourite place in the world in mid-March. I already sound like a flustered, repentant MP. uh, Talking about your expenses. The birdcage fountain or whatever it was that David Cameron tried to... No, you did. You you preempted lockdown. You locked down before lockdown. I had no idea what was going to happen. I came in mid-March for a couple of weeks to finish my novel. And then the Panny D, Lockie D happened. And I've ended up sort of accidentally marooned here, which has been a very nice, happy accident. So that's where I am for the foreseeable. And also, I'm rather loving that the mic that I had to order to do this remotely. It's called the Yeti 300 or something, which Pandora said is uh, what she will be nicknamed when she comes out of lockdown. (laughs) My hair is definitely starting to resemble Hermione Granger's at the beginning of Harry Potter. I've brushed it quite a lot, um, but I have... uh, Here you go, here's a secret. I have very curly hair, naturally, so I get straightening treatments, and I haven't had one for ages because the baby got in the way. And so the hair is starting to revert to its original state, 
my hair's having a bit of an identity crisis, basically. But right. anyway, back to how we're recording. So we're on House Party. Dolly and Charlie are my only friends on House Party, very deliberately. I can think of nothing more stressful than parties popping up all night. I'm an old woman. I'm not made for that. And then we're also <laughs> recording on our new mics and we're recording on something called Clean Feed. And given that Dolly and I are so untechy, bear in mind that Dolly once recommended the Sainsbury's app as like a really sort of futuristic piece of technology. In um, an episode <laughs> where Pandora was recommending sort of 15 New Yorker articles. <laughs> that was your recommendation for the week, wasn't it? <laughs> Sainsbury's app um but this does feel quite weird do you think we'll be different by the end of this I don't mean by the end of the house party sesh incidentally I mean by the end of god whatever all this capital a capital t is I'm quite cautious of speaking in a way that's too optimistic about this period or that is minimizing of obviously a huge amount of stress and trauma and grief and financial worries and like a you know mental health crisis for a lot of people mm-hmm. um you know not wanting to be minimizing of that i do think and i have read lots of theories that support this i do think in the long term collectively anthropologically speaking i think lots and lots of good can come out of this in terms of examining what it is we need and what it is that makes Mm -hmm. us happy and kind of looking again at our connections that we have with people and sort of practicing god I'm gonna sound like something off the goop lab now but it's but practicing the kind of art of of gratitude which for me definitely is always kind of could be more prevalent in my life I just think that there are so many there are so many things that that we as westerners complain about which this opportunity of a pause from life can offer us as a kind of remedy so you know we're always talking about how we have too much and we wish that we could live more simply we're t- always talking about how we could have more time to ourselves and focusing on our families and our loved ones and moments of quiet and time to reflect and look I know for a lot of people that's a great luxury and that's something that has to be put at the bottom of the to-do list and first is keeping themselves and their families happy and alive but I don't know I think that there could be very healing collective things that could come out of this I think there have been um several theories and this is a bit woo-woo for me as you know I'm not I'm not the wooey-wooeyest but I can inject it in my veins that the universe, and also this is very insulting, I think, to people who have lost, you know, people they love or who are ill, but that there's a theory that, you know, the universe centres this because sort of a bit like Noah's Ark, really, because basically we needed to collect ourselves and mm. our priorities. I do think it says some really interesting things about, um, and this is something I'm very interested in, actually, about the level of control we now exercise over our lives and that we can have anything. Obviously, not everyone can have everything. Money does play a role, but money does play a role. But this idea of obstacle is being gradually eroded till we live these largely friction-free lives, whether it's, you know, being able to get the food we want delivered, being able to get a taxi whenever we want for a relatively affordable price. 
you know, being able to shop via a million different things. And I think that that has started to completely overwhelm us. And there's a quote that I love so much from Emily Dickinson. And um, it is actually the epigraph in my book. Um, That's how much I love it. But I just wanted to read it here because I think it says a lot about, particularly for women, um, this idea that we need to be in control of everything and to be in control of the way our lives are running and that they must run excellently at all time. And she wrote, in this short life that lasts only an hour, how much, how little is within our power. And I just think about that because it, I think also there's a, and again, I want to be quite careful to, uh, careful about how I say this because I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't fight against this pandemic. Of course we should fight. But in terms of like just me and you dolls sitting at home, we're not a key worker, we're not a care worker. Literally the best thing we can do is sit in our home. So in mm. terms of how I respond to it, I think there's an element of leaning in. Yes, I am Cheryl Sandberg. Um, and kind of just surrendering to what's going on. And... I think one of the things I found most fascinating about having young children is in one way, it feels like life is paused, as you said, Dole. And I think for a lot of people, that's how it feels, like everything is on hold. But at the same time, the passing of time is so prevalent with children. You know, every single day, my son does something new. So it's this really odd and I think quite fortunate mix of everything feeling like it's standing still, quite stagnant, but then the passing of time is going so quickly through my children. So I feel kind of torn about this time in that I cannot wait till it's over. But I feel quite guilty because I don't want to wish away my mm. son's babyhood. So I mm. think it's, I mean, it's its complicated, isn't it? When I was clapping for carers last Thursday, which has become the favourite moment of my week, it's like a sort of emotional cornerstone, isn't it? When that little bit of social cohesion in a city, when people are standing on their on their doorstep and I noticed in the house opposite me that there was a newborn baby and the baby had joined since the last clap for carers oh wow and it just it really hit me because yeah. in the week that had passed for most of us nothing of note had really happened but this woman had gone from being pregnant and holding her baby inside of her to going into hospital in these you know incredibly anxious times to coming out having a baby so she'd gone through this like massive change so Time isn't standing still. It's just, it's just not how we're used to it. And actually something that you touched on there that I think is very interesting is I've looked around at the people I love and examined with such intrigue how people have reacted. I've been very surprised by some people and how they've reacted. I've been surprised by people taking it badly. I've been surprised by people who've been very philosophical and and kind of calm and centered about the whole thing and this is me observing this behavior with no judgment at all just as I said just interest because it does show you a whole other side to a person's personality that you might have known for your whole life that you've that you've never bear witness to before something I've noticed is the people that I know who have struggled most over the last month and again I know we we're using a lot of disclaimers here but it is important to make this very very clear when I say struggle I'm talking about people who aren't in immediate danger I'm talking about more of an internal or mental or or a lifestyle adjustment struggle Mm -hmm. the first type of person I've noticed that's found it incredibly hard is the person with control issues be that someone who just manifests as a kind of controlling personality or someone with a mental disorder which means they have to feel like they're in control of 
of potential chaos all the time. This obviously has been an incredibly difficult moment for them. And then the other type of person that I've noticed has found it hard, and to be honest, I do to an extent include myself in this, is the person who is more often than not absentmindedly a total slave to these kind of Western deadly sins that pervade our life on a daily basis. Because now all of those things that we've had such immediate and abundant access to have now been taken away from us. We can't go out drinking with our friends. We can't go and fuck someone. (laughs) We can't take drugs. We can't spend loads of money. All those external things that we reach for to give us a sense of self or to give us a sense of distraction have now been taken from us. And for a lot of people, that's a very uncomfortable comforter to be taken away from you because what you're left with is your thoughts and your relationships and literature and music and nature and that has to be enough that's that's all you've got that's your source of pleasure now I think what also I find quite interesting is on one hand there is a collective we are all in this together but on the other hand we are no more in this together than we are in life because obviously people are having such different experiences this pandemic like life affects you differently depending on your financial circumstance. If you live in a flat with lots and lots of different people and there's you know, very little communal space, you're going to be in a very different headspace to people who have the freedom to have a bit more space. And I think what I also find very interesting as a mother, and I've seen several people saying this on Twitter, is that day-to-day lockdown is not very different to your life when you've got young children because you don't sort of have a moment to sit down you're not really out within the house you're you know you maybe go to the park once a day anyway you're not out in the evenings the only difference and I think this is uh just in in the life of people with young children probably something that they personally find quite hard is that there's nothing to look forward to so the relentlessness with little children is a sort of particular type of monotony so everyone's kind of had I think really diverse experiences um which which is what as well is really interesting, I think, about it. Because you've definitely seen... You know how normally people like celebrity lives as escapism? I went on to the Daily Mail website, which I shouldn't, because you shouldn't read the publications that you don't agree with otherwise. You Do you know, know I've, I've relapsed as well. I've relapsed. I was looking at the sidebar of shame and there were all these pictures of the Beckhams enjoying themselves on their estate in the Cotswolds. And, of course, you know, that's that's where they live. They can enjoy it. But they'd been sharing it all to social media and the, and the comments underneath were not so much vicious as they were just reflective of a deep sadness from people saying, I'm, you know, I'm living paycheck to paycheck or I'm absolutely miserable at home at the moment. I don't know what to do with my kids. Like, it's not helpful publishing these stories. And that yeah. was really interesting because we normally see this kind of like, oh, we love to hate the, you know, like people love to hate that kind of thing, that sort of ostentatiousness. But actually there was more of a, you know, a sort of like despair, understand that we're all having very different experiences. Um, Yeah, I think think, that's very interesting. I think that and actually something that I have found like quite galling about the discourse around coronavirus in the last month, particularly from a lot of high profile, not even celebrities. I've been like really disappointed with a lot of high profile, just creative people. Is that absolute lack of 
acknowledgement of how important money is in this situation and how much that affects what your experience is going to be of not only this month, but, you know, the next six months and beyond. And I just, I've just, I think if you are someone who has savings in your account and you're not in immediate financial danger or panic, I just don't think that you should be speaking as any authority on how easy or difficult this pandemic is because it's the thing is that I've realized over the years is the thing with and this will sound quite trite but I'm still having to remind myself of it is the thing with money is once you have a bit of it you don't have to worry about it anymore you just don't think about it and then the minute that it's gone again you know if this pandemic had happened four years ago even three years ago for me this would have been a, a a massive 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 crisis this would have been an absolute life changer of how I was going to live where I was going to live um what my life would look like for the next year so I just I think anyone who's in a position where that's not something that they have to wake up and think about is like a choking oppressive fear every morning should be very very sensitive about how they're talking about this pandemic I think about it actually when uh, stuff like I, we got a takeaway on Saturday night, you know, just as like a break from the norm of cooking. And it was so lovely being able to, you know, ease that kind of claustrophobia by doing that. And mm. I think about it when I buy new books because, you know, we're obviously all reading a lot. I'm trying to read more than ever in the evenings. And I thought about it when I bought a sand pit for my daughter. We have a garden it's a small garden but I am very lucky to have it um and I bought a sand pit for my toddler and you know every time I do something like that I think god this is having gonna have such an impact on my day in a way it wouldn't have a couple of months ago buying a sand pit or having a takeaway wouldn't hold the kind of profundity that it does right now but those aren't cheap things to do of course on the other hand we're not doing any entertaining or socializing most of us aren't doing any shopping so you know you might have that money to spend but I imagine that almost all of us have either taken pay cuts or lost jobs so you know it's not like you should be spending it's not like you feel like you should be spending loads of money but the fact that I'm able to do those small things that make such a massive difference right now is yeah it's definitely something to hold on to as you say I mean I I do I'm going to be honest I do get really upset when I see people not social distancing or I see people playing football in the park but it's not because I don't think that some people don't have a much harder time of it what I think is that we need to tell people to follow the same rules whilst acknowledging that it is so much harder for some people to follow those rules than another just like it is so much harder for some people to live this life than others You know, my life is infinitely easier than a lot of other people living in this pandemic. And there are people whose lives are even easier than mine. It's not it's not a level playing field. That's all I want people to hold on to. In the last episode, which now feels like 48 years ago, because we've all aged a decade in the last month, you may remember that we launched merchandise. That merchandise is still on sale and it includes a beret, a tote bag, a notepad, a T-shirt, a sweater... And we wanted to let you know that all the merch money for 2020 will be going to charity. 10% was always destined to go to a women's charity. 
which is women's aid at this time. But the remaining 90% will now go to the NHS charity's COVID-19 urgent appeal, which has currently raised 24 million of a requested 100 million and which goes towards, these are just some examples, not all of them, funding well-being packs and gifts for staff and volunteers on wards and departments. This could include food deliveries, high energy protein bars, drinks, snacks, refreshments, wash kits, overnight stay kits, cost of travel, parking, accommodation for NHS staff and volunteer expenses. There are now 750,000 NHS volunteers, which is just an incredible response, I think. Um, Support to isolated patients through providing devices to communicate with friends and family whilst in hospital or isolating. Longer term mental health support of NHS staff, volunteer patients and their family. And I think that's really important because this the ramifications of this crisis are obviously going to be huge in long term and help patients leave hospital quickly and safely and remain or stay out of hospital. When the pandemic is over, we will continue to donate 100% of the profits of the merchandise to charity because if it has made us realise anything... I think it's that we've taken the NHS and its workers and the various tentacles of that. I include clinics, you know, all the mental health clinics, which are still going right now out of hospitals. We've taken that for granted for too long. And this episode is dedicated to those nurses who have sadly died whilst treating those affected, Arima Nazreen and Amy O'Rourke. If you would like to donate, and I know that a lot of people will not be in a position to, and that they'll be getting pay cuts and dropped work, so this is by no means suggesting that you should, but if you would like to donate, the link will be in our show notes. And thank you very much to anyone who has bought merch or who is planning to buy some. You are helping us to help a really important initiative. We are going to focus during this time on being uplifting. We're not going to be giving coronavirus updates each week because we're sure that you're already aware of them and perhaps are listening to podcasts because you don't want to be reminded of them. And that doesn't mean that we're not aware of the horrors that are taking place in the world as we record through those horrors. But we would just like this to be a place of escapism and culture and silliness and general nonsense for all of you. Speaking of which, I would like to share this text from my friend Adam, who is a screenwriter, and I think it might be my favourite and most astute text that I've received during coronavirus, which is about how this pandemic is just an example of bad writing. He said, One thing that annoys me about coronavirus in real life is it's such bad writing. One, COVID-19 is such a bad name for a disease. Sounds like a badly written sci-fi plague that affects the Klingons, not something in real life. Ian McEwan would call it something like grey lung. Two, the Prime Minister catching it is way too melodramatic. Three, the whole clapping outside everyone's houses is too clichéd, kind of cheesy, tear-jerking moment you'd get in the final act. When I read that, I was like, oh my God, this is a bad movie. We're living just in a bad movie. It's all pretty extra, isn't it? It's very extra. Just found out what that meant. Just because people kept accusing me of it with my outfits. (laughs) As Pandora's just mentioned, spoiler, since we've left you, Pandora's finished finished a book. I've finished a book. Pandora's had a baby and I've had (laughs) some McDonald's. How does it feel to... (laughs) How does it feel to be fresh out of mat leave, Panda? Does it feel very different to being in your house all the time? (laughs) there is nothing more thrilling than when someone messages me asking how my break was request that we stop calling maternity leaves breaks (laughs) I think between the book deadline and the baby I'd been out of my house for about 
two weeks of the last six months before we had to lock it down or as Dolly's trying to sort of make go mass lock it in and yes (laughs) I am saying that I invented lockdown I made it trendy you could say global influencer I did think you'll like this as well. I bought something off a French website a few days ago and they sent me an email afterwards explaining that my purchases would be delayed for obvious reasons. And then they wished me an iron constitution, which I really liked. And I don't know if that's a clunky translation, but it was really nice. And it's a lot better than stay safe, which is a really wincy platitude that's replaced take care. Have you been noticing it on your emails? Yes, I saw, I think it was the genius Lucy Preble who tweeted saying, I wonder during World War II at what point they decided to stop starting their emails to each other referencing the war. (laughs) I mean, also, it's like, oh, no, I'm going to start living dangerously. You know, it's what what else do you do aside from trying to stay safe? I'm, I'm pretty sure that we don't need to be reminded of that i'm trying to think of what stupid sort of nothingy fatic niceties i force into my emails i think i say i hope you're staying safe and sane i say i hope you're keeping well during this wild and woolly time oh that's good that's good jesus christ can we find a synonym for unprecedented wild and woolly i think <laughs> yes Delicious. i've used done perfect <laughs> chef's kiss she just did (laughs) and how about all the uh coronavirus tech a lot of people have said this is a real insight into how their partner works or spends their day i work from home so it's not that different for me but my husband literally zooms all day and house parties all night how are you finding the tech doll i'm actually enjoying it i think one-on-one is obviously fine it gets a little bit spicier when you've got (laughs) eight people on Zoom all having a drink together. That can get a little bit hectic. The thing that I'm most stressed about is I've, I've yet to have a meeting and on Thursday I've got like a six-way conference call and I do feel yeah, I don't stressed mind about it. Oh, no, Are they stressful? So you just, no, you just spend your whole time... For nosy people, which I am and you are, it is so fun being able to see people in their intimate quarters. You, you, it's like you get to know them in an entirely different way when you see them in their home. You instantly yeah. tell so much about people. The only danger, and I think you'll suffer from this, is listening to what people are saying when you're so busily trying to drink in five different interiors at once. <laughs> yeah I can imagine that's distracting do you know what though I've spoken I don't know why I am quite nervous about about this call just because I I've always find those kind of conference calls quite stressful maybe it's because of the uh uh infamous Alderton glaze that you came to know and love when we first started doing meetings together which is I do have a tendency to slightly glaze over um well you you can switch off your camera my husband um has done that sometimes because he's in zooms like all day long but I did query if it looks a bit iffy turning your camera off like is it yeah I I think I'm too much of a good schoolgirl to turn my camera off because I think it's a bit rude but also I do wonder if it looks like you're like what <laughs> I'm trying to work out what it is you're worried about like you're having a wank <laughs> on a lighter note I think that everyone has the opportunity to become the BBC dad meme, you know, the expert in Pusa. Yes. I I have a Marion 
and I have a baby. So there really is every chance that I could do this to Ollie. Uh, although my son isn't in a walker yet. He's too small, so maybe I can't do that. But I do like to go in the background of his videos, like Ross from Friends, and row the boat <laughs> and go down in the lift. But sadly, he turns the camera off when I do that. So I haven't, I haven't had my opportunity yet. <laughs> no shit. Oh, God, I've just remembered how glorious that week was on the high-low when that um, video first went viral. And you and I decided what our kind of star sign was of those you characters were Marian, in the video. You were Marion, weren't you? No, I was the baby in the walker and we decided that you I'm were the, the harried, harried mum. <laughs> I think he's called Robert Kelly. I am Robert Kelly's wife. I obviously want to know what you've been eating. Lockdown eating is pretty kooky for me. So again, I feel like I was coming, I had an advantage on this because I already was eating almost all my meals at home and I'd had some pretty funky pregnancy habits. So <laughs> I had like a jump start on this, I think. What I would say that I'm really proud of myself, actually, I'm going to give myself a pat on the back for this, is that I am not a cook by trade. I'm terrible at making proper meals. I don't like spending time cooking because in the evenings, as soon as I've got children to bed, I like to read. But I think this has really encouraged people to be really creative with the food they've got. And actually, I could not recommend more strongly Jack Munro's new daily cook show about cooking on a budget and cooking using tins and stuff that you might have in your cupboards or your larder. She's an amazing person to follow on Twitter anyway. She's called Bootstrap Cook, but she's now got her own daily cookery show and it's fucking brilliant. But anyway, so I've been learning to make some things. So I have learned to make a very good chicken laxa. I have managed mm. to come very close to recreating my flat white, which was the biggest small issue I had on a daily basis because I used to get a flat white every day at the beginning of every day so I've been working on recreating those and I have been making baby chinos for my toddler who's only had one in her whole life but mortifyingly kept yelling throughout lockdown baby chino baby chino <laughs> like she sort of lives in Knightsbridge with her own personal chef that's we figured so out that funny. she doesn't actually love baby chinos. She likes the marshmallows. She thinks that that is what a baby chino is. She was actually just craving the... What goes into chino. a baby chino? No ca no caffeine, presumably. Frothed milk and small marshmallows. Oh, yeah. And little greedy pants liked the marshmallows. So that's what she meant when mm. she kept on saying, baby chino. So I bought some marshmallows online. Obviously, I couldn't really get them from many places. So I bought them online and they arrived about two weeks later. And then I bought her some small reusable cups so that I can recreate this. What about you, Doll? What's your cooking habits been like during lockdown? Do you know what? I've done, I've done this weird thing where I kind of get obsessed with a meal and eat it for four days. And then not only do I not want to eat it ever again... I actively loathe every ingredient in it and I can't even look at it on my shelf or in my fridge. <laughs> so that's what I've done. I've been doing that in cycles. So I now just cannot ever have a vegetable curry again. I tell you my one, if I could give like one hot tip for surviving the panny do, it oh is. God. So I just, I can't believe I'm saying this. As you know, I adore pasta. I'm just, I've had enough pasta now. And also, pasta is in short supply on the supermarket shelves. Do you know what everyone's forgetting about? The humble potato. So I have rediscovered jacket potatoes over the last month. And I'm having Charlie oh, CJ nodding agrees with that. vigorously. Someone's yeah, woken up, haven't they? 
Affordable and easy, the old baked potato with beans or cottage cheese. Oh my God, I am having a love affair with baked potatoes. So the key is you have to put it in the hottest setting your oven can go. Don't put oil or anything on it. And then you put it in there. Don't touch it. Don't open the oven for anything between longer than you think. An hour if oh your God, oven's you're a bit telling shit, people how to bake a baked potato. 90 minutes. I cannot tell you how important this is. People get baked potatoes <laughs> so wrong. And the other thing that I would like to Same gift... Same all over again. That I would like to gift to the listeners that I've discovered over the last couple of months <laughs> is that there is nothing godlier than butter and marmite in a jacket potato. This is what happens when you make a woman live on her own. I give you Dolly Alderton. And you put her by the sea. Oh my God, put me by the sea. I'll grow a beard and fucking live off jacket potatoes the marmite happily. happily I did think after. before this episode came back, my list of high-low notes was talk to you about leg hair because my biggest revelation was that if you don't shave your legs or your armpits for long enough, the rate of growth dramatically slows down, which is something that I didn't predict. And I can't Mm. quite believe that so much has happened that we're halfway through the episode before I've even, you know, got to talk about actually that really important revelation. Um, Should we talk about lockdown chic? Because I have a bit of an issue with the idea of lockdown chic. I'm not sure that what anyone needs right now is to buy an aspirational tracksuit. I think surely no. now is the time to embrace what Indian Night calls full ferality. Have you gone fully feral, Dolly? I honestly am living and looking like a cave woman and I've never felt fucking fitter. I'm truly <laughs> loving it. I haven't used a hairdryer. Earthy. I haven't used a hairdryer in about a month. I have stopped using cleanser and moisturiser for like three weeks, just leaving my skin completely, just washing it with hot water. I'm very much feeling the absence of my monthly waxing. In fact, I was talking to uh, Deborah Francis White about this the other day, and she said she anticipates when all this is over that we're going to do a everyone standing outside their door and clapping for the waxers of the UK. <laughs> I was thinking that everyone's like, oh, I'm so excited, I can't wait to get like, you know an eyebrow wax or whatever and all this is over and I was thinking a little bit despondently that you'll probably only be allowed to do a beautifying thing once a week because demand will be so high they'll have to limit it and do you know what I do think I mean you could say this of our entire lives that lockdown is quite gendered because the all that most men are really noticing aesthetically day to day is that their hair's got a bit out of control and I have to say I am so enjoying the pictures of my friends who desperately needed a haircut before lockdown and now just have these like absolutely wild haircuts that they're going to have to do something about themselves. But for most women, there's a few things that, you know, they've done for such a long time. It feels like a really essential part of their of their identity. Like for me, it would be like getting hair straightening treatments and I really enjoyed the woman that said by the end of lockdown she's going to look like a catfish of her former self (laughs) she's going to have come so far from the woman that she once presented as 
But can we go back to this fashion thing? Because I love to feel comfy. Don't get me wrong. I have been wearing sweaty Betty tracksuit bottoms for six months, but I prefer a very soft tracksuit where I have a raging VPL. You know, those tracksuits that are somehow made of like really thick fabric, but at the same time, you can see absolutely everything through. Yeah. We were on our daily walk in the park the other day and I was like, how is my arse looking? And Dolly was like, there is absolutely zero mystery right now anyway I prefer that kind of tracksuit to a kind of high fashion conceptual number that no one's going to see me in and I bet I know what you're wearing those raggedy old gap leggings which probably have no crotch left by now can't get enough of them what's weird as well is I came here obviously thinking I was going to be here for two weeks so I have oh my god have you got like that's quite refreshing you're just wearing the same things that's very yeah. like you've just had a baby and only three items of clothing fit Panda, honestly it's lush I have one pair of jeans a pair of leggings the raggedy crotchless not in a sexy way gap leggings <laughs> crotchless <laughs> tracksuit bottoms so disgusting <laughs> couple of tops two jumpers and as I said I'm just loving it I'm really really loving not thinking about how I look okay for the moment but I do I'm, have a request really enjoying it can you not write one of those like really quite tone deaf slightly patronizing pieces about how liberating it is to have no clothes <laughs> it's like you no, know when you read listen. these pieces at the moment where people are slightly struggling with the journalism they commission and I get it fuck kudos to all the magazines and newspapers that are going on right now that are managing to produce something but anyone writing like um pieces about how it just feels so freeing to have nothing it's just quite insulting I think no and it is it is just a moment of you know I haven't properly properly not thought at all about personal grooming or clothes for you know a you know a month maybe months on end since I was a teenager so I just for some reason it's I just am really enjoying it and it's feeling it's just a really gorgeous experience also I must say to the listeners at home that this is how sexy I am at the moment I have been talking while eating a pot of Greek yogurt with a spoon from the pot for the last 10 minutes I hope you've been enjoying it Pandora and CJ um but yeah I've I have serious been really, really, of your yogurt <laughs> I have been enjoying it but I'm also I'm also aware that I'm enjoying it probably because it is a very a brief moment in time I do agree with you, though. I was jesting. There is something really liberating. And actually, the, the biggest uh, change in my life, I think, in terms of what I look like or what I think about the way I look has been... I'm not going to say, oh, I don't care what I look like anymore since I had children. That's bullshit. I, uh, you know, I care about what I look like. But it has really changed my relationship with clothes because when I was heavily pregnant, there was a very, very small amount of clothes that I could fit into... And um, still now, you know, I'm wearing a very small selection of clothes and it is really nice getting up in the day and getting up in the morning and putting on the same thing most days. Like I'm wearing a dress right now because I weirdly wanted to look nice for you, Dolly. But almost every day I wear the same thing and it's and it's a kind of it's, it's a brief, lovely thing at a moment when you're feeling probably day to day quite rank. Um, I asked Twitter a couple of weeks ago what petty things everyone had missed. And I said, they can't be meaningful, like hug your mum. They have to be really trivial and petty. And mine were EastEnders, flat white, 
obsessed with them and pretending I am a real blonde what are yours Dolly nothing meaningful nothing moving I can't believe that you watch EastEnders how did I not know this about you so I I started watching at age eight with my mother and then I stopped in my 20s I lost myself for a while Dolly I I lost my true (laughs) self and then when I had my baby in January, I think I started returning to it and Ollie and I got really into it. And I could talk a lot about EastEnders, actually, but I won't. Do you know who's, um, do you know who's EastEnders' biggest fan and he is, like, truly beside himself and doesn't know how to structure his week? Tell me. Tony Alderton. Really? He He's should obsessed. be quite happy to hear then. It's back two nights a week at the moment. Right. So you, just to, like, they're eking it out... But um, it's it's brilliantly written and there's a lot of really impactful storylines. So actually, it's not meaningless. Anyway, what are your petty things? So I've actually written a list that I wrote last week when I was having a bit of a I Miss Thrill World day. And I actually would say as a mental health exercise that everyone should do this. And it's a great exercise in gratitude for the lives that we all take for granted so my list of things that I'm going to do the minute this is all over it's like a sort of inverse gratitude journal isn't it yeah exactly things I haven't got not things I have things I will have again do an 80s aerobics dance class snog for two hours get drunk in Soho get McDonald's french fries from the Tottenham Court Road branch and eat them on the top deck of the 24 bus home Hug everyone when I see them, even in a formal meeting. And yes, that does include the high lows accountants, Jan and Matthew. <laughs> Share a fag with a friend who also doesn't smoke anymore. Sit in a pub. Sit in a pub from noon until last orders. Go out dancing and request Missy Elliott, obviously. Get the twenty-five quid pedicure in the salon on Parkway. Go to the cinema every Sunday night for a month. Swim in the ladies' pond. Get my fringe cut, pet every dog on the pavement, do hot yoga and relish the smell of 25 people's sweat, go out for ramen, go out for oysters, go out for a pret, wear heels I can't walk in, wear five coats of mascara, go to the Liberty Perfume Department, try all the perfume on and don't buy any, go to the guitar shop, play all the expensive guitars and then buy the cheap one, garden centre. That is a really gorgeous list. And there's so many things on that list that I was really excited about doing once Sasha was old enough. And it is a bitter irony that that time came (laughs) just as the old Panny D hit. But so many people are with you on the Pret, which is, I think, why you smiled at me because of the sort of 900 replies I got. And they were so wonderful and they weren't meaningless at all because... The small, trivial, petty things are what makes us us because they're the sum of how we spend time, and yeah. therefore they're the sum of the sum of how we like to spend time, and that's the sum of us. Um, but so many people missed Pret. My friend Niall said that he hasn't ever gone this long for a decade without Pret being in his body. <laughs> I mean, I haven't gone this long without. You could say that about a lot of things, couldn't you? I haven't gone this yeah. long without. Um, paying for someone else to make my coffee I mean it is kind of appalling when you break it down a bit isn't it yeah but you know what getting a flat white every single day and you know this Dolly was almost the only thing that got me through a really kind of hard three months of 
of writing this. Sorry, I know I keep saying I was on a deadline, but it, it really was the hardest thing I've ever done. It was it took me a lot more time than I thought it would. And I really had to put the rest of my life on hold where I didn't really see anyone. And I worked every weekend for probably about a three month period. And the one really peaceful, lovely moment every single day was going to get a flat white in the morning. You pathologized those bloody flat whites. They were because your, they they were were your so medicine meaningful. and potion, I remember. Yeah, of course. They were the moment of the day that you had to yourself. And it was like, I couldn't go out for drinks with friends. And I, you know, I couldn't take a whole day off on the weekend to watch telly. And it, I'm not saying I was, you know, on the fucking front line of a war. Don't get me wrong. But I was in a really, really sort of hard workplace. And, though, and I've missed those coffees more than I've missed for going out for cocktails in the evening because that wasn't really part of my life for a bit but these were some of the best replies I got that I wanted to share popping to the corner shop for a late night rustlers frazzles quavers after work drinks the sound of my sat nav having my personal space invaded on the tube the news with at least five different stories chasing invoices for payment being late for meetings and then someone else replied to that having an excuse to be late for meetings because <laughs> you can't now be like oh I missed your zoom <laughs> Pret Westfield the Pret in Westfield walking gracefully down the bus stairs while it's still moving and imagining that everyone else is really impressed bow from the place I love in Shoreditch when the ducks on the canal get angry and chase each other the nice man in Pret that knows my order street food whinging to colleagues in person And then this one got a lot of likes. Looking at my phone while ignoring my children in a play park. I actually (laughs) saw that one. And the journalist Sophie Hayward replied to that, Christ, that's almost a pornographic image of desire. And getting public transport, what I wouldn't give to be sat on a broken down northern line right now. Um, And to which I thought, yes, I I would give anything to be sitting on a very hot broken down northern line tube with no phone battery late yeah. for a meeting, thirsty, hungry, needing the loo, and in someone's armpit. I'd take it all, Dolly. Yeah. I'd take it all. Me too. Do you know what else I saw in your replies that I quite liked? Is Marie Conte said she misses packing a handbag. Deciding a handbag. which bag goes best with her outfit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then putting your shit in it for the day. And My handbag is just in retirement now. It doesn't know what's yeah. hit it. <laughs> all I've done is put my wallet in my puffer once a day. Yeah. In case I happen to happen to need to do a supermarket shop as well. Yeah. There we go. We must think about the leather goods in this time. And I also enjoyed a tweet from a comedian about your corona alter ego, which is your current state of mind and the last thing you ate. I was tired pan of chocolate. I dug those bad boys out of the freezer. Thanks, Mum. And yes, they were gloriously stale. I think they've been there for about three years. <laughs> and you were anxious yogurt. <laughs> What was Charlie again? Charlie had a weird one. What were you, what Charlie? Was it, Charlie? I think I was optimistic apple. That was it. <laughs> yes, so so sort of like clean and jolly. Um, whereas anxious yogurt, we liked it was sort of a bit sort of scared and wibbly. Bit wibbly. You're wibbly. Yeah. You're not. Wibbly. Uh, no, I'm I'm wibbly in all senses. <laughs> uh, some of the other ones uh, replies were lethargic chia pudding, restless sausage. Sniffly chocolate chip cookie and an achy pop tart. We are living, I think, right now for the memes, specifically memes from our parents. I think you know memes have gone mass when you get a variation of like a grizzly bear howling with the slogan lockdown day eight at the top from your dad 
every single day. Are you getting those from Tony Alderson? Yeah, I'm very interested in there's like a very particular flavour of meme that the parent loves. And it's like my friend Hannah... Not that funny. Dis- <laughs> yes, it's not that funny. It's never the it's really also- funny ones. My friend Hannah said that she's getting upward of 50 a day from her mother. And she said the classic one is like, oh, the Loch Ness Monster has COVID-19. Like, that's the meme. (laughs) They've all, all of our parents, especially if they're north of 70, have become like the new fuck Jerry or the new um, fuck Jerry. Sarah Jossel wrote in uh, the Sunday Time Style on Sunday that your days now start with a meme from your dad in the morning, the same meme from your mum at lunchtime, and then the day ends with the same meme again from your auntie. The good yeah. old memes. I wonder how the GC is doing in all this. In fact, speaking of memes, I checked out the GC's Twitter timeline and I don't think I've been on her Twitter before. Her bio simply reads icon, but with um, full stops between each letter for like maximum impact. And her wallpaper is her naked in the bath. And her timelines, aside from a very sweet get well soon to Boris, is retweets about how obsessed people are with her. So she just retweets, Gemma, I am obsessed with you. Gemma, you are my life. Heaven. Gemma, you, Gemma, you are heaven. And then I, re- Love her. I was reading Love her. her, I was, was reading her timeline. I thought, well, yeah, why would you use your timeline for anything else? And I did wonder, Dolly, if you thought that if you stay in that little cottage by the sea on your own for long enough, your fringe just growing longer and longer, you are looking quite <laughs> Afghan howdy. Do you think you could sort of go this way, way your wallpaper? Because I did notice last week when you were procrastinating from your own deadline that you were just changing all of your social media pictures, your biopics. <laughs> One honey percent. And also, you were the only person that picked up on that fucking thirst trap. So thank you very much. So thirsty. Uh, Gemma Collins actually delivered my favourite, like... Like, look, we're all learning in in this global crisis and none of us know day to day how serious it is. And also, particularly at the beginning, I think lots of us miscalculated how serious it was. But my absolute favourite celebrity U-turn has been Gemma Collins because she, like, before shit got really real at the beginning... She's one of the It's Only Flues. Yeah, she did a video of her, like, shopping up West and it's her just informing everyone that she was, like very scared about how empty the shops were and she's like we can't let the economy crash (laughs) then there were all these like candid pictures that the mail online took of her quaffing champagne in gucci and coming out with like these heaving shopping bags and somehow she found a way to make it political which is very my vibe i've taken to the ground i'm in the west end instead I'm urging everybody to keep calm and carry on. Let's get back in the shops. Let's get back living our daily lives. Everything's fine as all. And I'm feeling a little bit concerned. Uh, well, I she sort says, of know what she means. Spend it if you've got it. Help. Help <laughs> the economy all you can. I think what I mean is like... Framing her loose... Gucci as a political act. Yes, I get it. Having that. the loosest <laughs> grasp on like what activism really means. Um, but yeah, she then since had to do this like very humbling and hysterical U-turn being like, okay, obviously, yeah, this is quite serious. <laughs> the question is, Dolly, will you be downloading TikTok? I never thought I'd flirt with that as an idea, but I have quite been enjoying the celebi bebbies on TikTok. Mm, I have very strong opinions on this. I really enjoy watching the youngsters 
and all their silly dances on TikTok. Truly, they are a thing of joy and I, I really, really am enjoying them. I don't It's a think... disclaimer, I get it. TikTok is not for millennials and it certainly ain't for Gen Xers. And I think it's time that we just They stuck to lark- Facebook. You stopped larking about... We had our time for silly videos. It was called Vine and it happened in 2012. I never did those either. I, I think it's like very, very uncool when I see millennials, millennial couples particularly, doing all these like funky dances in their bathroom. That's what I it's want just... Ollie to do with me if he won't. No, no, Panda. Look, I am no <laughs> Look, authority like, fair, on what is and I isn't cool. I don't have any time. <laughs> I'm no authority on what is or isn't cool, but... I do know deep in the tissue of my guts that we should, it's not for us. It's if you're over 25, you should not be doing TikTok videos. Deep in the tissue of your tits, you know it. I know it. I can feel it. Here's a nice segue. Something I do feel very strongly about is Bill Withers, who very, very sadly died last week, aged 81 from heart complications. I, like the rest of the sentient world, adored Bill with his music and uh, have spent the last few days watching clips of him in concert because he's so mesmerizing to watch perform because you really really do believe that he has seen and felt every word that he sings and it's such a connecting experience to watch him and uh, very therapeutic to watch now I think and is you know the very definition of soul music um, so I'm going to spend the next couple of weeks completely immersing myself in the Bill Withers back catalogue. And I think we should insert a clip here of one of my favourite live albums of all time, which is him live at Carnegie Hall. There is nothing like dancing in your kitchen to a bit of Bill Withers and I also recommend a game I played this weekend Um, and yes it has come to these kind of games where I would name a song and my husband would have to guess whether or not it was Bill Withers and he got quite a few wrong and I think what that says is that he was actually even more of a kind of impactful songwriter than we think. There were even more gems from him than you could imagine. But I did quite enjoy a lot of people punning with, uh, it's not such a lovely day today. (laughs) But it was sunny that day, so it was also sort of a lovely day. It's now time for some recommendations of what we've been enjoying. But before we do, I wanted to mention some brilliant book initiatives that are going on and are so helpful and enjoyable during this time when it's really hard for debut authors to get their works out. Pre-orders have never been more important. If a website will let you do it, sadly not all retailers will, then do do it and also check out some of these. So the novelist David Nichols is doing something called hashtag Twitter book launch, where he highlights books coming out right now. You can check him out on his Twitter at David 
N writer. If you don't want to sign up to Twitter, I do understand it's offering up the good as much as the bad right now. A lot of everyday epidemiologists out there. You can still view his profile online without being a Twitter user. And the writer Fatima Bhutto, previous guest of the Hilo, has launched a brilliant initiative called Stay Home, Stay Reading with her fellow author, Sanam Mahir, which you can find on their Instagram accounts, although it's also on Twitter, at F-B-H-U-T-T-O, that's Fatima Butos, and at Top Bastard, great handle, that's Sanam. <laughs> they post two videos a day of authors reading from one and a half minutes to nine minutes. They read from their books or books they love, books they've got coming out, books they've found solace in. And it includes the poet Rupi Kaur reading The Sun and Her Flowers and the acclaimed writer of Lanny and Grief is a Thing with Feathers, Max Porter, recommending graphic novels and Alexander Chi reading from How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. The idea was to stave off a bit of loneliness, to hear stories and to encourage people to stay home, Fatima wrote to us. It's really wonderful and updated twice a day, so you get loads of new content. I really recommend checking that out. And lastly, I recommended Florence Welch, as in Florence and the Machines, book club. I am really not sure how I was so late to the party with this. I knew she was a massive lover of books, but I didn't know that she had this incredible resource. It's called Between Two Books. You can find it online and on Instagram with that name. Um, it's, she's got hundreds of thousands of followers. It's updated loads, really smart commentary, beautiful pictures of books. The recent recommendations include Note to Self by Emily Pine, Trick Mirror by Gian Tolentino, and My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Atessa Moshveg. And... Those are all books that I've loved and there's tons of others. So that's brilliant as well. And I will link all of those in the show notes. While we're on the subject of interactive clubs and things that you can do communally while we're in isolation, I wanted to flag that Laura Marling, who is one of my favourite singer-songwriters, is doing guitar tutorials for some of her most loved songs and she does them every Thursday and Sunday at seven o'clock on Instagram Live. She gives you the tuning. Um, she holds the camera really close to her fingers so you can see, like, she talks along with you. And uh, it's just really, really lovely. And she also has pushed forward her the release date of her album, which will be out on April the 10th, which will save us because her music is always so full of beauty and soul and fight and stories so i can't wait for that new laura marling album i love her music and also quite a few artists have done that dua lipa's done that as well dolly start me off with some things you've been enjoying i've been reading and adoring the love letters of dylan thomas to uh his wife and his lovers uh you can order and his lovers <laughs> because I'm very, very besotted with his epistolary relationships and I'm a great romantic, but I feel like I should make it clear that they weren't just to his wife, but the ones to his wife, uh, <laughs> Callan, are my favourites. And this book came to my attention when I went to Letters Live, which is the most incredible event. I can't believe I haven't been before. Um, and they're mainly done in London, but I think they're also done in America and they're sometimes done at festivals, which is a dramatic reading of letters of note, letters from history. Very it's Benedict Cumberbatch's thing, isn't it? It's actually, it started with a man called Sean Usher who did this blog years ago, which is just the most beautiful collection of 
letters of note, important letters from history. And they're not just from famous people. They can be letters that show really interesting relationships or, or very funny stories or very moving stories. And then that was turned into a book. And now it's this thing. It's, and now it's uh, also there's an events arm where the a kind of choice selection of the letters are read by actors who are a surprise on the night Benedict Cumberbatch uh, has done it on the night that I went Jonathan Price was reading Sally Phillips was reading loads and loads of brilliant people were reading and uh, it's a really really special night but anyway someone read uh, this letter from Dylan Thomas that I'm going to read an extract from write to me soon very very soon and tell me you really mean the things you said about you loving me too if you don't I shall cut my throat or go to the pictures Now I'm sad. I'm sad as hell and I'll have to go to a pub by myself and sit in the corner and mope. I'm going to mope about you and then I'm going to have a bath and I'm going to mope about you in the bath. And here's an extract of another one that I loved also to his wife. You mustn't look too grown up because you'd look older than me and you'll never, I'll never let you grow wise and I'll never, you shall never let me grow wise and we'll always be young and unwise together. There is, I suppose, in the eyes of the they, a sort of sweet madness about you and me, a sort of mad bewilderment and astonishment, oblivious to the nasties and the meanies. You're the only person, of course you're the only person, with whom I'm free entirely, and I think it's because you're as innocent as me. Oh, I know we're not saints or virgins or lunatics. We know all the lust and lavatory jokes, and most of the dirty people. We can catch buses and count our change and cross the roads and talk real sentences. But our innocence goes awfully deep, and our discreditable secret is that we don't know anything at all, and our horrid inner secret is that we don't care that we don't. I just love them so much, and I'm very aware that it's one of the reasons I love these letters is I'm a very kind of schmucky romantic, um, but I just love reading that kind of level of unguarded adoration, and I find it so enjoyable and truly such a weird and wonderful perk that you get in the package deal of being human is this kind of total surrender to the humiliation and insanity and obsession and nuttiness that can happen when you fall in love and I think nothing distills that better than those letters. Reminds me a little bit of Joan Hunter Dunn as well. Yeah I just love people having mad old crushes don't I? (laughs) I also loved a beautiful piece in the New Yorker about Desert Island Discs by Hua Zhu and particular his discovery of the desert island discs archives and its 2000 episodes in the piece he gives lots of brilliant recommendations some of which i haven't listened to before going right back to post-wartime britain when uh, the program first began yeah it's really really good and uh, he talked about how it's developed over the years and you know the different hosts that it's that it's had and the different styles that they bring and he wraps it up really beautifully and thoughtfully by linking the show's premise which is obviously being cast away on a desert island uh, to thoughts of our isolation now which I would like to read from what the guests from every decade are really talking about is a kind of enchantment that has become rarer over time a sense that there is nothing better in the world than escaping a few minutes into a song it never occurred to me until fairly recently that this exercise was different from merely naming your favorite songs or what you considered to be the best Those metrics, like all hierarchies, derive their meaning socially. They don't matter if you're all by yourself. I didn't realise that the Desert Island choices were really a question about mortality. If you knew you were facing down the end of your days, how would you spend them? It's not about the serious questions many people are playing out now, foolishly or not, who will bring food to grandma, what will happen to my dog. Rather, it's about something possibly more morbid. What would it mean to survive and find yourself alone? 
Would you bask in memories of friendship, the Beach Boys, and good times, Derek May, or your greatest love, the Intruders? Would those memories be too painful? Maybe you'd want to listen to music that existed free of context, the last splendid and uplifting thing you heard before getting lost, a reminder that the world goes on without you. Maybe what the show does in this moment is remind me that we have choices. A song is an infinite spiral of memories and associations. Would you trace it all the way back to the beginning or would repetition become a kind of trance, casting you somewhere new and impossible? I love that suggestion, that which I've never thought about before, that the island is not one static place, that the desert island could be a new place of your imagining every time yeah. you listen to a song. Yeah, and so I it's just kind of infinite. Such, yeah, and I just think so clever f- to link an analysis mm. of that program to l- the collective psyche now the, and the state that we're in. Uh, it's just a really, really clever, gorgeous piece of writing. And I, of course, while we're on the subject of Desert Island Discs, have to talk about a life-affirming episode. Uh, that went out during our break, which everyone was talking about, which was Ian Wright's Desert Island Discs. I was blown away by it, by the emotional depth of his interview and the stories that he shared from his life. I immediately texted our producer CJ afterwards because uh, he's the only person that I know who (laughs) has anything to say about Ian Wright. Um, I couldn't have enjoyed it more. There are so many experiences he articulates Uh, so movingly in this episode too many really to choose a highlight from but the clip that I wanted to play and that really really moved me is when he was talking about his mother who was in an abusive relationship when he was a child and the fact that he chose a song to mark that part of his experience not to celebrate it but to accept it and acknowledge it as a part of his story that has formed him is so profound I think and it's an example of why the format for this radio program is so powerful and so effective for exploring uh, all the facets of a human lifetime. Well this is a really tough one Tina Turner River Deep Mountain High it's one of the first records I ever remember and when you go on to see Tina Turner's film and what she went through and then what what I saw my mum go through I remember this record would come on and my mum would just cry because I've seen what she'd been through with my with my stepdad. You know what I mean? She was like what, four foot eleven and stuff, and he was six four. You know what I mean? And you know, I used to see him like lift her, do stuff to her. And this record, when I hear it, it just takes me to a place of real anxiety. It's a horrible tune for me. I remember my brother, when my stepfather used to be really, really manhandling my mum, my brother used to cover my ears so you couldn't hear it and when this song comes on it just takes me back to a, to that place why is it important to you to represent that and to talk about that to, experience i have to own it and deal with it as hard as it is my mum came through it with my help as well so it's it's part of my life it's part of my life i slightly fell in love with him from that episode i mean it's not really hard to fall in love with Ian Wright from a picture, but um, having listened to him on that, I 100% fell in love with him. It was um, incredibly eloquent and moving, and I think, as you say, it really offered something different in the way people talk about their lives. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What have you been enjoying, Panda? What haven't I been enjoying, Dolly? I loved an article written by Hugo Rifkind for the Times Lux magazine. Yes, that is me rifling through my physical notes. Not an online gal, as you know. Um, so this came out about a month ago, but you can read it online. I will link it in the show notes. And the piece is called The Luxury of Awkwardness. Why feeling not quite right is the spur to creativity, ambition and even passion. And I want to read the first... I'm going to read the first half. It's not a particularly long piece don't worry i want to read the first half as it's so bloody good you know it's not just you right everybody gets it that feeling where you don't belong when the music plays and the beat rises and falls and the entire room rises and falls with it except for you your wrists are rigid you have no knees or perhaps it's more conversational everybody else is fluent and charming and witty and full of beans and you have nothing at all or rather you do but it's locked inside and won't come out like soaring tunes for which there are no notes Everybody gets this. Some people only sometimes, others almost all the time. And you know what? They're the lucky ones. Pare it down, though. Be specific. Sometimes you truly are quite distinct from everybody else in the room by background or circumstance, by race or wealth or belief. This is not that. Or sometimes a thing happened that morning and nobody else knows. And whilst your face can do the required pleasant rictus, the you behind the eyes is deafened by the sound of silent screams. This is not that either. Rather, this is the awkwardness that has no excuse or justification beyond the dead weight of you. It gives you dancing feet like anvils and a tongue like, well, another anvil. It takes you outside of yourself and makes you look in. And it feels like a curse, but it is not a curse. It is a philosophy. The unexamined life, said Socrates, is not worth living. He was wrong, of course, because all lives are worth living. Indeed, he said it at his trial for corruption and impiety, during which he basically talked himself into his smug suicide, which I would humbly suggest wasn't a great outcome for anyone. Certainly, though, the unexamined life misses a whole dimension compared with the examined one. Diderot spoke of le spirit d'escalier, or the wit of the staircase. Dolly, you'll remember that. The clever remark yeah. you think of making only once you've left the situation in which you ought to have made it. In his case, it happened after a dinner with Louis XVI's finance minister, during which the gags presumably had been stupendous. What I have often wondered about that brilliant faux-heroic phrase, though, was precisely when it was that it occurred to him. Was he telling a pair of powdered, giggling courtesans a self-deprecating tale about arsing up dinner at the big knob's house and it occurred to him on the spot? Or did he crash and burn and replay that chat on the way out too? Is the idea of le spirit d'escalier, in other words, le spirit d'escalier itself? Anyway, he goes on <laughs> like that and it's That's like... a great it's piece like a, of writing. It's like a deep dive, but like a very small deep dive which I think is really hard to do to get really into the notion of awkwardness being like a creative philosophy in a real economy of words anyway Hugo Rifkind is a wonderful journalist anyway and I really enjoyed that I love that also because it's just a reminder that that opening paragraph that you read about everyone rises and falls other than you that's basically like 99% of people that I know and love 
feel that I think and there's something like so reassuring in so I remember when David Bowie died and Private Eye ran this very cynical front page that said David Bowie made me feel like it was okay to be different says everybody (laughs) I think that's quite funny because I think um quite a lot of the time people like to convince themselves that their anxieties are really like original like oh I know I've just got this like really kooky weird thing like I, I hate being in lifts or like, like basically all my anxieties are like unbelievably basic and mainstream. Like I don't like heights. I find going to weddings a bit overwhelming. I don't like being in lifts. Like, do you know what I mean? Like there's like nothing original about it. But yeah, I think that's yeah, I just, I just think like we're all feeling so awkward and stressed out all the time. And I think to find a way of articulating that as beautifully as he did is brilliant. I also really enjoyed a piece. When did this come out? Uh, also in March, really enjoyed a piece by the comedian Sophie Hagen on what British people can learn from Danish people. And she says that she's lived in the UK for eight years, um, but there are some things that she really thinks that British people could learn from Danes. Again, you can read this online. Again, I'll link it in the show notes. Uh, You don't get to the point. The Danes are direct. If you want to send a professional email to someone asking for some files, regardless of how little you know them, your email will read, hey, send the files. That's it. It took me a while to learn the British way of making every request sound as if you were asking a person for their firstborn's hand in marriage. Dearest (laughs) Cliff, I hope you are well. I do apologise for getting in touch on this godless Tuesday, but I hope you might consider even the slightest possibility of finding the time. And so on. My emails now take 20 times longer to write. Often I forget the pleasantries and simply send a Danish-style four-word message. Then I am filled with British shame. For this reason, I have considered adding an email signature that reads, I'm not rude, I'm Danish. And you can actually really imagine it in, in that accent. You must have heard the word a million times because I've seen it a million times in bookshops all over the UK. How to hygge the Danish way. Have a hygge. Another horrible misuses of my language. Hygge is a common word in Denmark. Instead of take care, we might say hygge. Instead of this is nice, we might say this is hygge Instead of ah, okay, we might say hygge It covers almost anything and means cosy or chill. It is not a Danish activity. You guys hygge all the time. You go to the pub, you watch TV, you drink tea to an almost psychopathic degree. The difference is in Denmark, there aren't £35 books on how to hygge. You cannot and need not buy a £50 hygge blanket. If Danes are more relaxed than Brits, it's to do with our excellent infrastructure, our social security safety net, the fact that we are paid a salary to attend university and have 52 weeks of parental leave, all because we happily pay about 50% in taxes. Socialism is the real higgy. You heard it here first. That's so brilliant. And you know what? I really, really felt that when I went to Denmark a couple of years ago to uh, promote my book in in to promote my book in Danish. And I remember walking around being like, (laughs) I remember walking around being like, wow, socialism really works. Look at this like highly functioning society where there's like hardly any homeless people and there's like really low crime. Socialism is the real hygge. You heard it here first. Anyway, the new thing apparently is Lagom. Can't remember what that one is. What's Lagom? I don't know. It's another, like, you can buy a book about it. And there's another one as well, another Korean lifestyle word that um, I have also seen going viral. I have a bit of an issue with our sort of adoption of foreign lifestyle words. Like, why? Why do we need them? Dolly, Can you imagine you if there are like some really chic French people sitting around being like, 
ah, there is this uh, lifestyle word that the English use. It's called a bender. <laughs> On a Friday, four hours, we drink the pale ale and then we do the bender. Sounds a bit saucy in that accent. <laughs> um, I, speaking of articles, I've just sorted out. I'm going to have to do this this evening. I've just sorted out, and God, it took bloody hours, an Instagram collection of articles I've enjoyed from the last few months that you can read online. I won't get to mention them all on the show because, well, time. But there's a couple of brilliant long reads from the New Yorker that I whacked up there, including a really rigorous, sprawling deep dive into what equality means. It's, it's honestly, I've never thought about the concept of egalitarianism like that before it's I learnt a lot um and there's also another New Yorker piece that I put up a link to a really moving piece about a woman convicted for killing her abusive ex-husband and then it kind of goes into a piece about violence against women and how low the convictions are and how many women are convicted for uh, killing someone in self-defense I don't normally flag up my Instagram as a place to check out because there are quite frankly better portals but I think it's got the edge on Twitter when it comes to sharing bulk information in one place because Instagram insights are really useful for bulking together things, especially with the swipe up link. And I definitely don't advocate spending masses of time on your phone at the moment because we're all forced to use it to socialise and it's important to have time off and read something tangible and physical like books. But um, I do think it's good to balance books with article because I know that lots of people are feeling like their attention span is a bit frazzled to pieces at the moment. So if you fancy something shorter and satisfying but don't have the time or brain power, I've tried to group together lots of articles that I've enjoyed in the last year or so and that I think are evergreen. You're out there doing God's work, Pandora. <laughs> Todd, what else have you been enjoying? I binged May Martin's show Feel Good, which you can watch I on 4OD. Dying to watch this. You are going to completely and utterly adore it. It's so, so good. It's written by May Martin and stars May Martin, who is a Canadian comedian and writer and just as a warning uh if you watch the show you will absolutely become obsessed with her i every person i know who's watched it has fallen slightly in love with her and if you finish the show and you need more of her then i would say a good place to go is her interview with adam buxton which i love and it's her being very uh, clever and funny. So Feel Good is a comedy drama about uh Mae Martin's character falling in love with a woman played by Charlotte Ritchie who has never been with a woman before. Um, but there's also a story that's followed, which is Mae Martin's character working through her recovery from drug addiction. It's got this quality to it as a show that's kind of a bit reminiscent of Transparent, that kind of dreamy indie quality that I think is quite hard to find in English TV, that the show just nails. It's really kind of effortless and unaffected. Um, but it's also really, really funny and crammed with proper gut-wrenching truths about the joy and the pain of of love. Lisa Kudrow plays an amazing mum in it. I think it might be her best performance yet. She and has been doing really great work since Friends and it's all so un Yeah, the comeback as well. I just totally, totally love She's just so, so funny. You really mm. kind of see her range as a comedy performer, I think, since she finished Friends. Um, but yeah, she's brilliant in in this and it's really, really moving. It made me cry a couple of times. 
Does sound like you. May, <laughs> I don't know what I was about to say. <laughs> Waterworks Alderton. Um, it's, there's great chemistry between Mae Martin and Charlotte Ritchie. And also, I know I sound like really quite in love with Mae Martin at this point, but she has this like old school quality of charisma where she's just so watchable and lovable and vulnerable, but in such a kind of unaffected way. She's she's really sincere as a performer and as a person, but in a way that is really believable rather than kind of performative. And I have to include a clip from episode four, which is Mae Martin talking about what love feels like, just because it very much resonated with me. So I guess... Like, my whole life, I felt like I'm not in the right place. Like, even when I was a kid, I just felt like there was some other place that I was supposed to be. I was, like, always running behind this other place. And I've been with good people, really good people, like, people who love me. And I lie next to them, and I just feel, like, so restless. And then when I lie next to you, I feel like still and quiet deep inside i think you're that place i've been running behind i just googled her to um just be fully absorbed in her while you were talking about her and i can see that she's just done an episode of guilty feminist with deborah francis white oh has she and charlotte ritchie who is her who she co-stars in with it so that will be an interesting one as well oh I can't wait to see that there's so much I want to watch but I'm always torn between trying to get through the endless bloody box sets and wanting to set aside evenings to read especially because watching stuff um kind of set key cues up and keys into my insomnia but it's really difficult because at the moment understandably the telly's really good like the BBC and various networks have obviously responded by just giving us so much good telly but i do really want to make make feel good a priority it's it's like it's really 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 special show yes no i definitely do want to watch that on to bookie works god it still makes me laugh that russell brand wrote a book called my bookie work do you think there were like conversations in the meeting where they were like are you sure you want to go with this yeah i'm absolutely sure Jean. i do yeah (laughs) anyway um (laughs) to bookie works two Mumwas, that's a mum memoir. Did I invent that or not? I probably did. No, no, it's a thing. It's a thing. Oh, it's a thing, is it? Okay. Anyway, two mumwas, which we are going to discuss today. The Panic Years by Nell Frizzell and The Hungover Games by Sophie Hayward, which are out in May and July, respectively, but you can pre-order them both. Do have a little treaty pig to look forward to. The Panic Years comes from what Nell calls the tumult that smacks into many women like a train at their end of their 20s and early 30s. It's a really beautifully written book, essentially about that time in a woman's life where you have to decide, that time in a woman's life where you start thinking about if you want children and um, who you might want them with and when you might want them. And I'm just going to read a bit by her because I think she puts it into words better than I ever could. 
These years are compelled by the eternal question. Should I have a baby? And if so, when, how, why and with whom? That question then creeps into every area of your life. It is the rat-a-tat-tat of the tracks beneath your feet, the baseline to everything. Whether you want to be a parent or not, as a person in your late 20s and 30s, perhaps even into your 40s, the slow march of unfertilised opportunity brings an urgency to your life that no other period can quite match. You have to decide what you want now before your body takes the choice away from you. And what she says is there is there is no medical term, no compound word for this, um, this tumult of time, the hormones, the social pressure and maternal hunger. And I've never read anything like that, really. I've read books written by mothers about having children and books written by people who don't have children about not having children. But I haven't read a book about trying to unite all these women that are so often divided into these camps and it can be hard to meet one another across what can really feel like a chasm actually um and it does remind me of something a friend of mine with a baby said she said you know I talk about having a baby with my friends with babies and I talk about work and like fun shit with my friends who don't have children and I want to talk about both with both I kind of want to be as much of my whole self as I can with my friends and that's something I really feel, actually, as well. But it's, I think women are definitely made to feel like you belong to one tribe or another. What yeah. did you think of yeah. um, the panic years? I thought it was so powerful. And I was really, really grateful to Nell for writing it because I think what it does is it gives space and permission that is so woefully lacking now, particularly in feminist discussions for women to panic, for women to panic without judgment. And I've definitely felt, you know, judgment or disappointment from women when I've said, this is something that I want. And this is sort of, you know, as a Western woman, we're told that we can control and plan for everything. And to an extent, this is the one thing you can't, you can't really... Yeah, fertility really confounds that. Yeah, and and I think that that will engender panic and fear and anxiety. And what, you know, that doesn't mean that I think that all conversations around fertility and being single in your 30s, that it should involve scaremongering. Not at all, but I do think it is a disservice and a lie to say to women that this is something they don't have to worry about if it's something that they want. And I think I've really felt in the past and you know what it's often mothers that do this to me where I will say "Mm, yeah you know there are biological constraints maybe not as much as you know misogynistic traditional voices would make us believe there is a time limit Mm. for women having children and I have been confronted with women who say oh you've got loads of time you've got way more important things to worry about don't think about it, it will happen. And I, I find that quite a frustrating response. So I think that it's really great that Nell has carved out this space where those fears are given airtime and are both quelled and questioned. And yeah, I just think it's, I think it's a really powerful book. I think as well, another thing that I really love that she talked about is um this idea that when it comes to children you have to be absolutely certain either way so people who say oh I don't want children 
there's a lot that the response tends to be like, well, how do you know you won't change your mind? What if you're too late? And I remember reading someone who once said, I'd rather regret not having children than have having children without really wanting them. Fuck yeah, exactly. You know, there's enough, there's enough children in this world whose parents didn't want them enough or weren't able to care for them enough. Like that's, you know, that's not a mistake I kind of want to make. And another thing I love as well is that I do feel, and this is definitely a line that I feel I have to tread very carefully as I'm stupendously lucky to have two young children, but that doesn't mean it's always easy. And fun enough, a lot of the messages I've received during this time is like, hope you're having at least like a dreamy time with your family. I'm having a lovely time with my family, but by God, being in lockdown with two children is not always easy. And I think we need to allow women to have moments of like, what have I done? <laughs> Even if it's just for a second. Yeah. And Nell calls it the flux. She says it's the very nature of the beast and that we need to allow women to have swings and attitudes without kind of making them freak out that they're being inconsistent or reliable and she says our circumstances are always transient our feelings will fluctuate human life is uncertain to come down squarely on one side or the other of any decision might look like a strength but it is in fact a position as fragile as a dandelion clock and I also really loved the way that Nell kind of um spoke about her life leading up to that as well um the position she was in before she decided she wanted a baby and relationships which hadn't been quite right she said sometimes chasing after people you can't have is a way of protecting yourself against the vulnerability of a real relationship with the people you can and real relationships do make you feel vulnerable for them to work you have to show the other person your faults your weaknesses your desires your private fears and your true intentions you have to unpick the armor that surrounds your heart and trust somebody else to hold it even if that means they might break it all of which is extremely hard to do when, thanks to a period of upheaval involving breakups, career changes, loss of friendships or changes in your body, you've lost your sense of who you are and what you want. And I think that's just a really beautiful... Very truthful, yeah. Yeah, a beautiful way of even being in a wonderful relationship can be exhausting. You know, relationships can be exhausting and then you throw into... God, should I have a baby? When should I have the baby? Can I have the baby? Like, you know, it's it's a lot. But she adds something new to the kind of exhausting, God, it's so hard being a mother. God, it's so hard not being a mother. You know, it's like fleshed out into something much more nuanced. Um, yeah. Anyway, you and I both loved it. I also wanted to talk about, because I knew you loved this one as well, The Hungover Games by the journalist Sophie Hayward, which is a filthy and funny memoir, memoir, about Sophie's accidental pregnancy in her early 30s with a man she'd been sporadically hooking up with in LA where she lived, but she had no desire to have a baby. And this is no less poetic than Nell's book. Um, I wanted to read a few lines on when they got together. I find Sophie's writing like the most delicious salty snack. I can just never stop consuming it. I find it so Moorish. It is really salty. We were tangled up against the frame, a bee in its sting and the reckless pursuit of honey, wrapped around each other like we had something to prove. And I suppose we did, even though I would spend many years afterwards wondering what it was, or what would have happened if I hadn't walked up there, or what if the tour hadn't brought him to town, and what if I hadn't injured myself doing power yoga for God's sake in Mexico? 
There was a bottle of whiskey on my side of the bed and a bag of weed on his. At the time, I thought how cool it was that we were both wise to our pleasures. Looking back, I wonder if we were both wise to our own pain. I think about that line all the time. What an amazingly, like, succinct way of looking at how joy and pain are very closely related. I just think she's such a stunning writer. I've loved her writing for years, and I think she has this very particular blend of artful, abstract poeticism in her writing, twinned with proper, earthy, sometimes quite shocking, acerbic, real talk. And I think it's it's really hard to do that without feeling a real clunk in the tone shift. And she seems to just do it so gracefully. Yes, I think it could be quite hard to be revolting and poetic in the same sentence. And that is something yeah. that Sophie manages to be. And I also yeah. love as well that the she her daughter is, I think at the time of writing, eight or nine. And it was really lovely to read a book that starts off with a woman on her own and then is the woman when the child's a bit older rather than, say, the book stopping when the child is still a baby or a toddler because you get a real insight into her relationship with her daughter. And it made me think so much about those little traditions you have with your children, like... I'm starting to forge those now with my toddler. You know, she's starting to have preferences and ticks. And that has been such a unexpected delight. I thought I'd always really mourn her babyhood because they change, you know, so quickly and they're so delicious and small. But toddlers are an absolute riot a second. I mean, exhausting, but an absolute riot a second. And it's wonderful watching my toddler develop her kind of sometimes infuriating autonomy. For example, she has become absolutely obsessed with washing her hands and she calls it rubby. So all day long, she says, Zadie rubby, Zadie rubby. And if you're washing your hands, she pulls up her little stool to the sink and starts furiously rubbing her hands together. And I don't know what she's going to do when this pandemic is... I don't know what she's going to do when this pandemic is over because she's absolutely in her element. She is loving it. (laughs) I miss her so much. She's such a good toddler. <laughs> she's a good. She's she's a largely good toddler. But there was a bit. Look, I hang out with a lot of toddlers. There are a lot of dickheads out there. <laughs> but there was a bit I just loved where Sophie writes. We make it to school in the nick of time and we hug each other goodbye and she goes inside and up the stairs to her classroom but she stops at the big landing window and waves down at me and we both bump a fist onto our hearts to show that we will carry each other in there all day and then we blow a kiss and each of us do a big splat movement, a sort of fried egg punch on our body to show where the kiss that the other person blew has landed and it's always somewhere dreadfully inappropriate landing place like an eye or an ear or a bra. Splat goes the imaginary kiss and we wipe it off ourselves. We mime wordlessly that we have each been wounded by the other's kiss just wonderful stuff do you know why else I loved that book so much is that it doesn't attempt to position itself as relatable and I mean that in as utmost praise and weird bravery in these times because I think Sophie is and always has been so unpandering with her writing. She's so unapologetically herself. And I think that's a kind of red-bloodedness that is sometimes lacking in female creativity and female stories and female writing, not for lack of its existence, but for a kind of fear of um, isolation or unrelatability, which is something that male creators just don't really 
have to address, I think, that, you know, I think women feel in their storytelling, if they've been given a platform, that it could very easily be taken away from them. So they can't be too much, they can't be too weird, they can't be too rarefied or unlikable or narcissistic. They have to be encompassing of enough female experiences to make sure that their platform will still be there for them. And that's obviously just like a really stifling way to have to Well, we speak saw your it truth. with bag. Like, it's not like, I don't think Phoebe Waller-Bridge ever set up Fleabag to speak for every woman. And yet most of the discourse around it was whether or not she uh, was relatable, whether or not she was leading a life similar to yours. You know, whereas when that isn't really the most important point, I don't think she ever set up to speak for everyone. And what I found really encouraging around the reaction to Fleabag is... The universal nature of what she was plummeting emotionally was so profound that all the other chatter around it of like, oh, well, what house does she live in? What area of London does she live in? How does she afford this? What's her, you know, how much does she drink? What does this say about her morality and her promiscuity? Actually, most conversations that I saw, that was something that was quashed and most people said, well, that doesn't really matter. Like the framework in which this person lives their life, that's not why we're all tuning in. And if we are, it's for like a bit of fun escapism. The thing that we're connecting with is her vulnerability and her feelings. And that doesn't, that transcends your background or what the specifics of your story is. And Sophie in this book does that so well because it's emotional themes, which are about a feeling of inadequacy, not feeling like you're performing femininity in a correct way, feeling like you don't have a rule book for adulthood and a kind of restlessness that she describes. That's a set of very common and recognisable fears and anxieties. But the setting that she puts it in is so unrelatable. Not everyone will live in LA. Not everyone will get pregnant in the Chateau Marmont. Not everyone will interview Jodie Foster and get an enormous scoop. But that doesn't matter because that should be, that is one of the joys of literature. It, it, it sh- There should be a type of literature always that takes you on a journey into another world that's different to your own without judgment. Um, on to another piece of nonfiction that I'm reading at the moment. I thought I'd stick with nonfiction this week. I'm going to drip feed the stuff that I've been enjoying over the next few weeks. I am really enjoying a piece of nonfiction about grief by the psychotherapist Sasha Bates. Um, There are books written by psychotherapists about grief. Grief Works by Julia Samuel, whose second I'm about to dip into is really popular. And then there are books about what it is like to lose your partner. All at Sea by Decca Aikenhead is a um, really beautiful one. But I hadn't read a book before that melds the professional as a psychotherapist and the personal as someone that lost their partner. And Sasha has combined those two, well the professional and the personal, that status and that experience. And she's written a book that divides into five stages over the course of one year since she lost her husband, Bill, um, where she describes how she feels and then she tries to apply what she has learned as a therapist. And then she explores the times when that really exposes the shortcomings of grief counselling, how incapable anything is really at helping you navigate this absence. And she says at one point, 
oh, look, here comes... And she says at multiple points, for example, oh, look, here comes therapist me to remind whimpering, floundering me about William Warden's tasks of loss. And at times it means that her professional capacity is able to name and assess her grief slightly better than if she didn't have this training. But at other times it kind of enables her to put into words in a way that someone reading a book by a psychotherapist might find frustrating, which is that you can't perfect grief. You can't do it right. You know, there is no linear way to get through it. And William Warden, whose task of loss she talks about, is one of two grief models, which is often used in psychotherapy. The other is the Kubler-Ross seven um, stages of loss, which include shock, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, testing and acceptance. So Sasha develops her own five stages in the book, but not because she thinks that they are goals or stages for anyone else's grief. It's just a way for her to kind of demarcate her journey. The chapter I found the most pertinent is chapter three, flailing, because I've heard this from a lot of people, actually. It's when the immediate aftermath of the grief is over. So people stop texting every day. They stop staying the night with you, you know, to check that you're never Mm. alone. You've probably gone back Mm. to work. They stop dropping food around and you're sort of expected to go back to normality. But of course, your life is nothing like the normality that you know it's a completely different life that you have no experience of and she still feels Sasha in in the flailing chapter to use Decker's term all at sea and I think the most helpful bit I thought is where she provides a long list of things not to say or do to people grieving and the things that do so I think even your loved one, she warns, cannot always help. And as a loved one, you have to prepare for the fact that even though that person wants you around more than anyone else right now, they don't actually want you around at all. They want the person around them that they've lost. When you are surrounded by all your favourite people whose only aim is to look after you and try to make you better and yet you still feel lonely, it brings the horrible realisation that this is a loneliness that can never be alleviated. Others have expressed it better than I. Julian Barnes calls what he feels in the wake of his wife's death not loneliness but her lessness. While in her wonderful and moving book about the death of her own husband, Decca Aikenhead says that in grief there are plenty of people to do something with but what's hard is that there is no one to do nothing with. That really Mm. resonates. I would rather have Bill being annoying than these other people being nice. And yet that feels ungrateful because I couldn't exist without them either. I want him, but I want him more. Life now feels full of these tensions and competing and contradictory emotions. It's exhausting and it's horrible to be so lonely when in company. Other people are crucial to my well-being, yet simultaneously they lead to a diminution of my well-being by failing to transform themselves into Billy. Other people are a massive part of my mourning. They bring both amazing highs and dreadful lows to the situation. They play a huge role in my grieving and I play play a role in theirs. Here are the things she said you should do. I'm abridging them in the immediate aftermath. Write a note as opposed to an email. In the note, write down some of your memories of the dead person. Tell your friend who else you've been in touch with so they know who has been told and who hasn't. If the funeral is imminent, let them know if you are coming or not. Offer to tell others who haven't heard. Make it clear you do not need a response. Do not add to their burden of responsibility. Make some food, any food. Take it round, leave it there. Don't offer to share it with them. Take a book or a magazine or a playlist or a box set. Take them books about grief. There are lots out there. It will be too early for them to engage, but it will help them know how others survived it. If you are there in person, make your own 
own cup of tea, pour your own wine. Don't expect the grieving person to act as host. And she says later, if you stay the night, wash the sheets. Do the washing up, feed the cat, walk the dog, entertain the kids, wipe the table, use your eyes, see what needs to be done. Take a book Mm. and offer to sit quietly so they don't need to talk. Take a vase. The quantity of flowers that arrive often far exists the number of vases to be found in a normal household. If you are a very good friend, you're going to have a different role from those who are less close. Help to plan the funeral. Go with them to register the death. Ring who needs to be rung. Cancel memberships, subscriptions, direct debits, bank accounts. Tell them you love them a lot. Tell them you'll continue to be there in the years to come. If you have a specialist skill, offer that. A private yoga class, a massage, a haircut. Spot something around the house that you could mend or make better. Just do it. My friend Sherry went out and bought nails and a hammer and took it upon herself to mend the long, broken garden fence. I just thought it was really powerful. I've never read anything like that. A mixture of the practical and the um, emotional. Yeah, I think that's, that's just so useful and incredibly illuminating. Speaking of grief, actually, something else that I found really interesting in the last week was the writer and presenter Dorno Porter's interview with Adam Buxton, old Mr Buckles again, on his podcast. Sorry, young Mr Buckles again. She talks about how um, losing her mum age seven has affected her mothering. And it's such a candid, frank chat, in part because Adam doesn't step around her grief. He's quite direct, actually, and sometimes it's disarming. Um, It's quite a it's quite a brave move as an interviewer, actually, because I think, you know, people pussyfoot, quote unquote, around grief and asking people about the death of loved ones because you really don't know how they're going to respond. You know, it might not be something they like talking about, so they might shut down on you completely. So I think it is quite a gamble to be like, you know, very direct and candid in the questions. But it really pays off in that um, Dawn is up for talking about it she's very thoughtful she's very eloquent she manages to talk about it almost as if she's removed from her grief and it's very very moving to listen to and she says that you know when her friends started to sadly maybe lose their mother in their 20s or their 30s they would call her up because they would expect that she could understand and offer them some wisdom and she would be like I don't have a clue how to reach you because the truth is, is I don't really remember my mother and that's been both yeah. a blessing and disguise to me, which is incredibly yeah. honest. You can't ask a seven-year-old, do you want to go to your mum's funeral or not? Do you want to watch your mum die or not? I've heard described to be the moment that she passed when she was sitting there with you know, her family. I think that's enough for me. I don't know if I needed to be there as a seven-year-old. The funeral, all oh, it's weird. It's just, oh, God. I mean, and also you're asking grown-ups who are devastated to make decisions in a time when their heads are completely up their asses. Like, it's so deeply complex. What would you do if you were in that situation? I don't know. I mean, obviously, I think, you know, people ask me all the time, how does the fact that your mum died affect your mothering? And the honest truth is I rarely think about it. My mm. auntie stepped in as my mum when I was 10. I'm very close to my sister. Like, I feel like I have endless female support. She died so young that I don't... I'm sad she's gone. I'm sad I don't have that, but I don't miss her. Mm-hmm. But what it has done to me is it's given me a heightened feeling of the fact that I could die on my children. And sometimes, you know, when I've got the fear from a hangover, which is m- most of the time, I um, I kind of look at my kids and I'm going, God, I hope I never do this to you. I hope that never happens. And I go through the whole scenario in my head and just play it out. Just to go back to Sasha's book quickly, her book made me think about grief because I don't think the grief is always about death I think it's always about mourning something that has slipped away from you or been taken away from you but I think that people are actually experiencing quite a lot of grief 
at the moment and I think they're feeling guilty about it. I definitely, at the start of this pandemic or at the start of going into lockdown, I definitely grieved for the maternity leave that slipped out of my grasp. You know, it was, as I've said, swallowed by a work deadline that um, had taken me a lot longer. And I really romanticised the, the, the month of March. It was this kind of month of golden shimmering promise. I had all these play dates in the diary with other babies. You know, I was finally going to introduce my baby to some friends who hadn't met him yet. Drinks with friends, you know, finally going out for cocktails, our family holiday. Like I pinned all these hopes on it and I didn't realise how much I'd sort of been heading towards this month as like something that would kind of redeem my mind and then it got cancelled and the holiday got cancelled I cancelled my book tour and we withdrew inside again for months and I felt this sort of baby blues colliding with the pandemic and I felt a tremendous guilt about that because I hadn't lost anyone to the virus and I have a roof over my head and my job is still mostly intact and I realised, and I know this is a wanky line, but the sentiment hopefully hopefully will prevail, that we have to give ourselves permission to grieve because I think a lot of people are grieving right now for, for cancelled things or lost things. And you should be allowed to have shit days and feel sorry for yourself as long as you don't let that overwhelm you or isolate your experience as somehow more important than someone else's or become your defining experience because I think if you deny yourself that moment or that feeling of grief then it can turn inward and sort of fester and I don't think that's good. I read an article last night that a friend sent me Panda that I'll send to you uh, because it chimes so much with what you're saying that I found so helpful I'll make sure I put it in the show notes as well which basically says what we are collectively feeling is grief grief for uh our daily lives that have we've been that we're that have been momentarily lost but also grief for a type of living and a type of mindset that now might have gone forever in a way um which sounds very nihilistic and I don't mean it to be that you know the phrase that people keep using is that we're going to be heading into a kind of new normality which is you know exciting in its own way but also there should be a moment for grief of our old lives as well I think as well it was how quickly everything piled on wasn't it as you were learning I, I remember I felt like every single day I was absorbing a new massive piece of information that in other worlds would have taken me several weeks to process. But you only ever had yeah. like a day, didn't you, before like something else happened. And I think the ramifications yeah. of that has been a sort of, yeah, collective mourning, as you say. But I do think it's really important. I know it's something, dull you've been hilarious about, about like sort of not behaving as if you're the only person that corona's really affected. Yeah. <laughs> like everyone yeah. else it's is like having a-, a really great time. It's a difficult thing to master because it's like everyone has to be sensitive to each other and their own situations, but equally we all have to take it easy on each other. It's just like a really weird time for everyone to know how to behave appropriately, I think. Yeah, I think allow allow yourself the bad days and the low moments, but um, just download another meme, guys. Just download a meme and uh, everything becomes a little bit lighter and brighter. I think we should wrap it up uh, here for now, Dolkins. We've got so many more recommendations coming to you for Saturday's episode. We're going to do some telly chat and there'll be lots more coming next week as well. I wanted to end with 
um, one of my favourite songs because, strangely, it's about sickness, but it's also very uh, uplifting and very gorgeous. And in these times where we've lost so many of our rituals of normal life, I just think it's nice to remember that we will always have jacket potatoes with Marmite and we will always have our best friends, even if they are gorgeously staring at me down my phone screen currently on a house party. And we will always have beautiful music. You can email us thehighlowshow at gmail.com or tweet us at thehighlowshow. Bye-bye. Bye. Though tears of sorrow won't do you no good. I'd be your doctor if only I could. What do you want from the liquor store? Something sour or something sweet. I'll buy you all that your belly can hold. You can be sure you won't suffer no more. I'd swim the ocean or the deepest canal to get to you, darling, just to make you well. There's no place on earth I would have hated.